Welcome to the Tea Room. I'm Kate Swanell. We say to people, oh, just eat less, exercise more, but then don't change the environment in which they live. In fact, we say that particularly to people living with more disadvantage, people who it is even more difficult for them to make changes where they are. Professor Louise Bauer from the University of Sydney is President of the World Obesity Federation and Director of the NHMRC Centre of Research Excellence in the Early Prevention of Obesity in Childhood. She's also a paediatrician. Recently, the World Obesity Federation published its World Obesity Atlas 2023 report, which provided evidence that by 2035, over 4 billion people globally will be either overweight or obese, including 20% of the world's boys and 18% of the world's girls. The numbers for Australia are also scary, with 47% of our adults expected to be obese by 2035. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Bauer to our chat. Did anything surprise you in the results, particularly the global results? I suspect it didn't surprise me as much as it may other people because I'm pretty aware of what's been happening over the last numbers of years. In fact, it was in the early 2000s that I was involved with the publication from the predecessor of World Obesity Federation that highlighted the issue of the increasing prevalence in children and young people from low and middle income countries. So that was published in 2004 and that was really the first bringing together of those data from around the world. And that's that was an impetus at the time for World Health Organization to actually start to look at this. When you realize that there's much many, many other countries that are affected and that it can actually impact people in middle income and even low income countries, you, you want to take it even more seriously. I've been a medical journalist for 10 years. And I feel like we've been having this conversation over and over again. Do you see any any kind of progress being made in terms of governments being willing to put in the hard yards when it comes to obesity and, and, and food security and health in general? It is very challenging, isn't it? In 1997, Australia was the first country in the world to have a national obesity strategy. It was called Acting on Australia's Weight. So that yes. was 1997. And one of my colleagues now refers to it as Waiting on Australia's Act. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we tend to really say just eat less and exercise more. We say, we still see it as an individual responsibility we and do. we stop seeing it. We just can't see it as a whole community as something that relates to broader policies. We really, as human beings, are responding physiologically to what is a pathological environment. If we had the same view, for example, imagine you had gastroenteritis and you pick up this individual and you treat them and treat the cholera or the E. coli, whatever, and then you put them back in the sewer, you would be ridiculous. And while that's a more extreme example, It's a little bit like that with obesity. We say to people, oh, just eat less, exercise more, but then don't change the environment in which they live. In fact, we say that particularly to people living with more disadvantage, people who it is even more difficult for them to make changes where they are. And as long as a cauliflower costs $3 more than a McDonald's meal, how are we ever going to solve this problem? 
I think that's exactly right. One of the, if we look at our national obesity strategy, which is a very nice broad document, it actually talks about making healthy food more accessible to people. But what we've just observed, particularly in the last year, for a whole lots of reasons, is that healthy foods have become less and less accessible to many, many people, particularly if you live in remote and rural environments. But if Mm -hmm. you live with social disadvantage, it's going to be difficult. If you live in a green and leafy suburb and have a good income, you can still keep on doing that. Our food systems are really weird from that point. So um, in a lot of those areas where food is grown, that is not where the people who consume it receive. receive. Yeah. And so we've made it difficult for people in rural, regional Australia, and, of course, people in remote Australia have even more additional difficulties. And even within urban environments, you'll see that there's a differential in price in big urban environments. I live in a green and leafy suburb. I can walk to one of the two big retailers. I can. There's actually other retailers around reasonable food of reasonable quality, of reasonable price. That's far more difficult. In parts of Western Sydney, you'll actually find food deserts or you may just have junk food retailers around and little local shops that may sell some things at high cost. Let's talk about the Australian numbers in, in the in the Atlas. By 2035, you're modelling that adults with obesity will be 47% of the population, which ranks as very high. Uh, annual increase in adult obesity 2.2% every year. Annual increase in child obesity, 2.6% every year. Impact on national GDP, 2.5% every year. The only good news is our global preparedness ranking. What, what does that mean exactly? It means do we actually recognise that it's a problem? Are we putting in place strategies to try to deal with it? Do we have universal health coverage? So some of the things that uh, do we have and um, a world that makes it a little easier for people living yeah. with obesity to seek treatment. We're a far away, though, from countries such as Switzerland and some of the European countries which are higher, which have really invested in strategies to improve physical environments, to yeah. change some of their food environments, and which provide better access to care for people living with obesity. That ranks us 24th in the world, so there's plenty better than us. There's a lot more worse than us, of course, so we're still fairly privileged, I guess. Wave a magic wand for me, Louise. Money's no object. The politicians will say yes to everything. What do you want to happen first? I actually sometimes think the best approach would be for this to be part of the responsibility of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I'd like to take it out of the responsibility of the Minister for Health and put it squarely in Prime Minister and Cabinet because the solutions don't lie in general with health. Or put it in Treasury because it's something that costs That's a general comment. If I think about treatment, people living with obesity who need access to care, then it's really hard to think of one thing I'd like to do. (laughs) (laughs) List away. Let's talk about them all. (laughs) Well, well, I actually think it's really good if we actually had trained health professionals. I think people are trying to get trained, but it's a more recent health issue or recently recognised health issue, and we have a lot of staff, nursing, allied health and doctors who aren't well prepared. I'd love to see bariatric surgery provided in a lot of public hospitals as part of public hospital service delivery. At the moment, 95% of bariatric surgery first operations are done in the private sector. Yes, That's ridiculous. Why are public hospitals not doing this? It's, I think, part of a systemic 
stigma towards people living with obesity uh, so that the voices of people living with obesity aren't heard, they're not valued as much as other issues. Many health service, well, many people in the community um, have negative views of people living with obesity. Just pick it up, whether you're at school or in the workplace in the general community, but it's rampant within the health system as well. And amongst our health service managers and people who are making decisions about allocation of treatment. So it's still a very, very slow process, even though the evidence has really rapidly accumulated in the last few years. Uh, So if we think about bariatric surgery, we've actually got many years of data now showing that people with bariatric surgery have better outcomes in terms of remission of type 2 diabetes or a decrease in cardiometabolic risk, less costs in other parts of the health system, more likely to return to to work and to be productive members of the community and to live better quality lives. And so that's very, very clear. There's no doubt about it. And yet we put up barriers to this. One, I I talked to Professor Ahmed Ali about this, and he also said that part of the problem is that public hospitals are afraid that if they make it available, they'll get swamped. That's exactly right. Well, we can see this whole idea. If we'll open the floodgates, everybody will come in. This can be managed. This can be thought through in a way. And in fact, if you open those floodgates just a little bit and allow people to trickle in, then there'll be less people ultimately Mm -hmm. needing services in other parts of the health system, a whole number of other obesity-related complications. Now, of course, you have to expend money to to treat people first before you get the benefit of the reduction. But it's um, a, a foolish concept that we won't let people in because it will only overwhelm us. Let's talk a little bit about the training doctors get in obesity. The, the whole eat less, move more thing, is that all they're getting? It varies and it depends upon where you went, were a medical student and which college you belong to in terms of the training that's provided. Yeah. I think there is more and more good quality education being made available. And I might just comment, it's not just doctors, but nurses and allied health professionals need really good training in this. Remember too that it's really, I suppose, only the last 10 years or less really that um, in fact, even less than that, that anti-obesity medications have really started to make an entry and be, you know, to have good evidence that they can provide outcomes, certainly up to two years and more in terms of weight loss and improvement in cardiometabolic risk. It takes a while then to actually beef up the training at you know, medical student level, training level, ongoing continuing education level. And we've got to get our act together and we've got to make it simple and easy for people. Yeah. To learn. Speaking of the senaglutide, ozempic, wegovi situation, do you see them as viable, publicly available, accessible option for people? Can I give the analogy with statins? Maybe thirty years ago, yeah, or, uh, when they f- were first coming in, uh, they were used for a particular subgroup of people. They weren't PBS supported in our in Australia, and yet. The evidence grew and grew that they were really effective in many ways of improving cardiac risk. And now there's a number of different types of statins available. GPs have quite an expertise in their use and they're PBS supported as well. Now, do we need to wait 30 years for all this to happen? (laughs) Um, When I speak to people making decisions about this, they are concerned about opening the floodgates. 
they are concerned that soon everybody will be having these at the moment, expensive medications. And we've only got data out to two years in terms of obesity. We've got longer periods of time for, where diabetes, got yeah. for people with diabetes. So I think we've got an idea. There's a lot of people on these medications now. And so we're getting an idea of safety profile and other impacts. But again, there's this conservatism about let's not spend money because it's going to cost money. At the same time, to have like a 25% weight loss and a reduction in cardiometabolic risk can have enormous other benefits. How much trouble are we in, Louise? It, f- it feels like we're in a lot of trouble with this. Yeah, I'm a basic optimist, and yet I feel really down about these issues. I can see the potential for making big changes, but it's like we've been doing this for again and again and yep. again. That comment on acting on Australia's weight, Waiting on Australia's act act, rather than acting on Australia's weight is a very real one because I think we're very good at documenting the concerns. We've got some great strategies that we'd like to do. We just don't implement them. We only implement those right at the level of individual responsibility in general. And there's other things that we could be doing, like really taking food marketing seriously when it's directed towards children and young people. And I know I'm a paediatrician, so I'll highlight that issue. But things like Let's look at the food system and how we can get better quality, lower cost food to people who most need it, communities that most need it. And I personally would love to see a sugar-sweetened beverage tax or something like that. I know we live in a sugar exporting country, but it's interesting in places like Mexico, which had the first, you know, this first big soda tax. They've had an improvement in dental caries in their community. Revenue raising can be used for other health-related strategies. There are many, many jurisdictions around the world that have some form of sugar-sweetened beverage tax. If you had Anthony Albanese sitting in front of you right now, what would you say, apart apart from move it into your department, (laughs) Albo? Um, what would you say? Apart from let's implement the National Obesity Strategy and the previous versions of that beforehand, I do think a sugar sweetened beverage tax would be a really good way to go. But I know that both our Labor and Liberal parties are very concerned about it. I think we could do much more to restrict unhealthy food marketing directed towards kids. I think we could look at innovative solutions to get healthy, lower cost foods to communities that need that. And that's actually a large part of Australia at the moment. I don't necessarily know how we would do that because I think that's up to local communities to think through what would work best. But I think that is rightly the role of government. And then I'd also really like to see improvements in the way that we treat people. And so this includes, let's look seriously, let's do some more number crunching around anti-obesity medications, bariatric surgery, and the provision of multidisciplinary teams and, mm. and supported allied health and nursing support. It's really hard. If a GP has a person who's really wants some support to actually make healthy lifestyle changes, and that is still the basis of treatment, yes. yeah, that's the foundation, and then you have other forms of treatment to add, where do they go? How can they afford to see some people? There aren't many such easily available services around. And so if we could look a little bit like the way that we've done with eating disorders, which is actually provide more Medicare-funded visits, allied health, I think that would be great. GPs are tremendous, but I think GPs, like all doctors, wouldn't think that they're the only answer to really good 
care. And when we've talked with GPs, they want to know clinical care pathways where they can refer people to get good treatment. They're incredibly patchy at the moment and they they are much easier if you've got money than if you don't. One of the things that your audience might find really encouraging is that People living with obesity say that if they're treated with respect and if they have, if their concerns are met appropriately, if they're not just judged as someone who is big, but someone who has a range of strengths and challenges in their life, and if their health issues aren't just all ascribed to obesity, then they feel that they can come back to that GP, to that health service. And so Our approach to people living with obesity is really important. We can make or break this person in one sense. We can help support them on a healthy life or give them support or encourage them. Even if the weight on the scales doesn't change, their life might be much better because of the way that you treat them as a GP. Thank you, Louise. My thanks to Professor Louise Bauer for chatting with us today. You will find a link to the World Obesity Atlas in the article attached to this podcast. I'm Kate Swannell, and we'll see you next time in the Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.